when I first started at KPMG, I think everyone was on perpetual. And then as years go by, some of them shifted towards SaaS or, or, or the newer companies, they were just born in the cloud. So pure SaaS and other companies run some type of combination in the middle. So you can see a variety of different type of revenue models. In the world of business finance, things change fast. Welcome to the Leaders of Modern Finance, a show where today's finance innovators discuss what the future holds. Learn from experts in the field as they explore emerging finance trends, insights, and more. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the leading account payable automation platform. With Stamply, collaborate easily and efficiently with invoice approvers, vendors, and anyone involved with purchases. This helps you quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com. Hi, and welcome. I'm Tiffany Fox Quintana, Vice President of Marketing at Stamply, and welcome to the Leaders of Modern Finance. Today with us is Christina Liu, SVP and Chief Accounting Officer from Confluent. Christina, welcome. Thank you, Tiffany. Very nice to be here. Great. We have a lot to learn about you today, but maybe quickly just give us a quick overview on your background, and then we'll go down your journey of becoming a Chief Accounting Officer. Of course. Looking forward to an exciting conversation. So a little bit background about myself. I am a working mom. I have two boys, age 13 and eight and a half. I am an immigrant born and raised in China and came to the U.S. as an adult. I am also the chief accounting officer at Confluent. I also have a 13-year-old too. We have a lot more in common than we realized at first. (laughs) That's right. As we were getting ready, we were waving at each other from where we are. One of the interesting things I found about your profile was that you started off in biochemistry and then moved into accounting at one of the big four. I'm curious, like, what made you take that leap? That's a very good question. And I got that question a lot. Uh, If someone looks at my LinkedIn profile, you can tell that I graduated was my undergraduate degree in chemistry. And that was from a university back in China. And at that age of 21, 22, my parents told me you should go to the States to pursue further education. So here I came with two suitcases and enrolled in a PhD program of biochemistry. Six months into the program, I realized I was probably not cut out for the, the, the science field, although I really enjoyed proving out hypothesis and, and the theoretical side of things. I, I still needed to be able to see the application of what I do in the, in the real world. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so that realization made me look at opportunities outside of um, the science field and of course, at that time, my parents told me, hey, why don't you look into business school, maybe stay away from the fluffy side <laughs> of things. And- you mean like marketing? <laughs> <laughs> no offense, Tiffany didn't want to bring that up, but since you said that, uh, yes. Um, so you have to keep in mind, my parents are very typical Asian um, stereotype. Uh, parents, especially my mom being a tiger mom. So basically she said, why don't you go study accounting? At least you get a job. (laughs) That's how I got started. A very humble beginning as the immigrant foreign student. Yeah. 
needing that security of having a job in absolutely a country. So that's how I got started in accounting. Yeah, absolutely. Did you find a lot of similarities between going into accounting and what it was you loved about science in general? I think, like I said, the the hypothesis to it. Development of hypothesis and proving out something works, something doesn't work, I think has really helped me a lot in in my career as in, in the accounting field. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's the basic debits and credits, but as I continue to develop my career, more and more time I find myself trying to make decisions with incomplete information, mm-hmm. whether that's significant transactions or a, a new area the company is growing into there's a lack of 100 percent certainty of information so how do you make decisions with incomplete data and 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 maybe have different options and have different hypotheses but along the way try to use data to either prove or disprove your hypothesis i think that perhaps was the training earlier in my career in the science field has really helped me to be okay to live with incomplete data. Yeah. And knowing where to go and looking and researching and finding where those answers really are and searching for it. It's when I actually started at Stanley, one of the ways our CEO described what accounts payable did is he's, they're like investigators. They're trying to figure out, did this actually happen? And and I actually saw this amazing YouTube video on it once, but I, I never really thought about your true. It's like you're constantly investigating. When you first went into working, I think you were at KPMG, what was your first role there? I was say, so my first job out of uh, accounting school was at a local CPA firm in Portland, Oregon. At that time, being a foreign student, I needed yeah. a sponsorship for green card. So I went to Got it. whoever who was willing to sponsor me. And for the first two, three years of my career uh, as a professional CPA, I I did tax returns during the tax season and audit of privately held companies during the audit season. So that was a very interesting experience. I actually really enjoyed talking to those individual tax return clients about their personal stories, about what has happened in their lives during during that year. But after two and a half years, of course, I had bigger dreams, and then that's when I, 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 I um, applied for an opening at KPMG in the Bay Area. Uh, I started as the second year associate. That's how I got started at uh, KPMG. And did you do on audits there? Were you mostly on the audit side? Yeah. I ended up staying at KPMG for the next nine, nine and a half years entirely on the audit side. Then worked exclusively with technology companies of different sizes from the very early young startup pre-revenue to the pretty late stage, well-established tech companies in the in the valley. And yeah. so that really opened my eyes to the, the, the different life stages, if you will, of, of companies and the different styles that they operate under. What were the, some of the biggest changes you would see as the company would transition and grow? especially from an audit perspective. I think I was part of the benefit being in the Silicon Valley Bay Area. It's, it's really the innovation that you see from these companies. I, I'm, of course, closer with the numbers. The latter part of my tenure at KPMG, there was 
the, the SaaS model was new yeah. at that time. And I, Salesforce was on the, the, the up and rising at that time. And companies like Adobe, who's been established for some time, was going through transition. Absolutely. From the perpetual uh, software license model to a SaaS model. So there's, at that time, it was so new that the investors needed a lot of education. And, and, and so just having gone through that, having seen that process playing out at a variety of my clients, it was fascinating for me to be part yeah. of. Yeah, it was um, very interesting. In my career, I started off in a very in a subscription-based service. So a lot of the acronyms and a lot of the KPIs that we're looking at today from CAC, and we would have called it SAC at the time, but it's subscription-based. But it, so many of them are all very similar. We were looking at LTVs. We were looking at all of this stuff back from then that every SaaS company continues to look at and obsess about today as well. And it comes from an ISP model, which I guess before you could have SaaS, you needed to have all the internet infrastructure that of course would be formulating and building the SaaS. But it it is an evolution and it was quite a different change for so many different companies out Mm -hmm. there in general. So were most of the companies that you were your clients on that end, they were all SaaS companies or were some of them perpetual models still? When I first started at KPMG, I think everyone was on perpetual. And then as years go by, some of them shifted towards SaaS or, or, or the newer companies, they were just born in the cloud. So pure SaaS and other companies run some type of combination in the middle. So you can see a variety of different type of revenue models. Yeah. One question I do have for you is because I've seen more and more chief accounting officer, but it hasn't always been as predominant in many places. It's coming, maybe in larger companies, but can you tell me a little bit more about the rise of the chief accounting officer? Yeah, interesting question. I have the same observation. So let let me just share my two cents. I I think the requirement for the CFOs these days, it's so high. Maybe in the old days, the CFOs are more of just the guardianship of the company to make sure operations um, or compliance side of the house is under control. And then maybe there is the regular annual planning process. Mm-hmm. The, the core, you know, yeah. accounting and maybe FP&A. But if I look at the role of the CFO today, it has changed pretty significantly to, to, to be really a business leader, to not only look back, but also to look forward and right. to help drive the right conversation with data, supporting the different perspectives so that holistically as a leadership team, the company can make the right decisions with eyes open. And so there's the demand of the CFO's time being more on on the strategic leadership and and that insight and that foresight perspective. And and so that role became just bigger, that much bigger. That, I think, give rise to the role of chief accounting officer because someone is still required to really keep the compliance side of the house under control and be an executive to that side of the the, the house, Um, especially during the the high growth phase of a company, 
to not only look at what has happened, but also to see what's around the corner so that we don't run out of the, the runway. That's right. what I find myself spending a lot of the, the time. There's the, the day-to-day, there's always something that's wrong, always something that's on fire, but I, I, I force myself to take a step back and, and, and reflect on what's happening, what has happened, and use that to, to try to project out in the next 12 to 18 months time period, try to see what's around the corner, what could derail us in the high speed that we're running so we can continue to build that runway ahead of us. And so do you partner with the CFO? How does that relationship work? I partner with the CFO very closely on the one side, of course, everything on the operational side of the house, including AP and payroll, it's just all of those, keeping the lights on, I would call those functions needs to yeah. run very smoothly. That's not an easy job if the company is growing at very high speed. Yeah. And then I would say the second component that that I work with the CFO very closely is uh, supporting strategic projects of the company. The company itself is is changing rapidly. There's the rapid expansion internationally, for example, and there's the transformation of business models. That was the, the new pricing and packaging proposals, the new product launches, and also the competitive landscape is, is impacting the business model or how we go to market. And right. that has a lot of impact on your rec policy, and all sorts of accounting side of implication to be able to be part of that process to have real-time feedback of what would that mean in terms of our longer-term forecast. That's a very important aspect that I worked very closely with, not only the CFO, but other leaders in finance and oftentimes go-to-market leadership as well. The rest of the executive team and having a seat at that table and hearing that firsthand and understanding and providing that impact is a valuable component to any future planning at all. That's very important. <laughs> right, day. trying to strike a balance between the two while continue to invest in the scalability of my own team. Yes. There's, right, the, you can't just keep throwing body at, at, at problems. You need to find ways to automate um, and, and, and to scale in a cost-effective manner. So the, the balancing act of all these different components, it's really the bulk of my work. Yeah. You were at your previous company for, I mean, a good, I think it was seven years, if I recall. But tell me, so you started with them and you saw them go to massive scale. What is your secret to scaling? Yeah, I my prior life was Zendesk and that was, I joined Zendesk in 2013 when they were a late stage startup. And then went through the IPO process and stayed for another six and six half years subsequent to that, you know, in, in this altogether seven, seven and a half years, saw maybe 10 times or more revenue growth to, to exceed a billion dollar on the top line. And international, we became wow. a lot more diversified and there were a a handful of acquisitions and a lot of different, you know, projects and initiatives uh, in that time frame. So definitely never a dull moment. <laughs> so, so as you, so you said you started when they were late stage, right before um, IPO, like how, what stage were they? How far before IPO were they at that point? I joined right about a year before 
they went public. Gotcha. And so that was when I joined, I think the overall finance team were maybe just a dozen of people, everyone including accounting of PA. So there was a pretty significant yeah. ramp up in terms of capabilities and, and processes and systems in that one year, but even more so in the years yeah. after that. When I joined, I, I thought the IPO was, Your was big the one. Was the big yeah. one. Now, hindsight, looking back, that was really only the beginning. Of- wow. Yeah, I can. I believe it. Yeah. I look at companies as well that I've been at from what the magnitude just increases so much so as things get bigger because there are more ideas, more people, more initiatives, more projects. Everything just starts going at such a rapid pace that it's like a it's the snowball it just gets and bigger and bigger totally and 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 for me who have stayed there for over 7 years i got to see in a later stage the consequences of some of my decisions some were right some were wrong <laughs> it put me back 7 years ago but those were the right decisions so it, it's such a a hard balance to to to, to strike especially in the high growth companies of how much further do you project do you build something for today or do you build something for a year from now or six years from now? Yeah. And that, that continued focus on improving and also keeping tabs on what's not working today and what won't work when we have 10 times of, of size and volume. That is such a tricky balance to strike. Very true. How did you keep your team engaged during those times? It's hard. It, it is hard. Just because the company is growing fast, to be even to keep up with the company's pace of growth is hard enough. And, and for those higher achievers, wanting to get promoted in that environment is incrementally harder. You, you, you have to, your growth rate has to be higher than <laughs> that growth curve of the company, which is already a pretty high one. Yeah. And so it, I, I think the leadership qualities in in this high growth environment requires one is the inspirational type of leaders. I think you just have to show up the right way in front of your teams. There there were so many days that were frustrating to to, to me, and and I make an effort to remind myself to show up the right way in front of the teams. Right. On one side, I have to be real, be vulnerable. Right. You know, I'm not going to hide things that. That, that are going on personally with myself. But on the other hand, I think there's a responsibility as a leader to, 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 to inspire your team. And especially when time is tough, just going through your ends, it's such a, a drawn out process for our finance function, starting right around this time to the time when we filed a 10K, which is middle of February. It's a long stretch of three four months you just like a marathon yeah a marathon it is you could think of this as a sprint but at the end of the day you're just so exhausted by the process and it's very important as leaders during that time to just bring that energy and keep reminding people why are we here we all chose to be part of a high growth company because of the opportunities and the learning curve However, going through it, it is difficult, but this is what we yeah. sign up for. So it's just like cheering the team on, on the yeah. side and celebrating the small wins. It's a, a super important aspect uh, to, to keep the team uh, engaged. What would you, if you were thinking back 
in all of your companies would you say was your most your proudest team win? I, I think every year when people on my team get promoted, that is the proudest moment to seeing their personal growth. Yeah. I, I think that's that's an annual process or half a year. It's a reminder of, of you know, why I like my job. Yeah. And, and what it means to be a good leader is to really bring up your team and let them shine. Yeah, absolutely. If you had advice to somebody who wanted to go into the field of accounting and maybe become a CAO someday, what would it be? Wow, that's such a big question. <laughs> Depending on the, the stage of their career, earlier in my career, I was too afraid of being rejected and I cared too much about how others perceived me and that helped me back from yeah. raising my hand or even asking a question in the meeting because I was fear, fearful of being thought of less competent. Yeah. You know, now looking back, it was completely unnecessary and that was a barrier that I created for myself. So I would say for the younger, earlier state career folks, don't worry about it. Yeah. In, in action, it's the worst choice than being rejected. Yeah, <laughs> just, just do something and... and take more things in your own hands and not be too fearful about others, how others look at you. Yeah, I think that that's great advice. I think, I don't know if it's a, if it's a young thing or a woman thing, but it's definitely something that I think a lot of times it's hard to want to ask a question for it. What your fear of being perceived as, well, they think less of me. I'm going to be, is that a stupid question? And I, I often try to do the same, please, there are no stupid questions. I, and I, sometimes ask a stupid question like that happens and sometimes I have the worst ideas and sometimes I have okay ideas and it's all about pulling them out and engaging with them and getting them to engage and be there and you can't succeed unless you take that first step and sometimes it is asking those questions so thank you so much I've enjoyed our conversation and I would love to continue this on again thank you Great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Leaders of Modern Finance podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review. You can see the show notes and all the resources mentioned in today's episode at stamply.com slash leaders of modern finance. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the most powerful way to process and pay invoices. Stamply is the only accounts payable automation software that centers communication on top of the invoice so that accounts payable collaborates better with approvers, vendors, and anyone involved in purchases to quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com.